Hey there, OCD family community. Is it just me or is this new year flying by? I feel like January was about 20 weeks long, give or take a week. And now it's already almost April. But hey, in our school district, spring break starts today at 3 p.m. That's right. And I'm here for it. I'm ready. Even though the, the year feels like it's barely started, I'll go for a break. I accept. Also, we are on the cusp of April here, which also kicks off Autism Acceptance Month here in the United States. And I tell you, it's purely coincidental, but I'm delighted nonetheless that when I looked at my calendar here, that we are getting ready to kick off a three-part series on autism and OCD. And y'all, it's a privilege because I get to introduce you all to my new friend, an esteemed and insightful colleague, Dr. Jeremy Schumann. So it really is a privilege to make space and support the autistic community near and dear to my heart as we discuss these important topics. So join us, fam, because Jeremy really helps to illuminate a solid foundation and better understanding for neurodivergent affirming treatment And I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so y'all, y'all. I'm so excited that you could join us today because Dr. Jeremy Schumann is a new friend to me. I feel like we're friends now, Jeremy, right? And I'm delighted to be able to introduce you all. He's a treasured colleague in our field, and he does great work around neurodiversity affirming approaches to psychotherapy for clients with co-occurring autism and OCD. And again, what a wonderful way to engage in Autism Acceptance Month. It is just such a happy coincidence that I can help expand understanding at the same time of celebrating neurodiversity. Now, most folks know that I have myself some autistic children, and you've probably heard me chat about them before or even with them before because everybody in the family at this point has been on the show. So if you've been around our family gatherings long enough, you've heard that. If you haven't, you can certainly go back and listen. So when I say this subject matter and this understanding is so important and near and dear to my heart, I mean it. And I just want to know, just because I am the mother of autistic children, I'm not claiming to be an expert on autism by any means. But as a mother, I am an expert on my children who happen to be autistic. And even then, that doesn't mean I know it all. So this conversation has and will continue to be helpful for me in learning more about how I can support my kiddos and our family grow in our understanding of autism, of different neurotypes, different ways of processing the world. Not right, not wrong, just different. Additionally, I've had the privilege of working with so many dynamic autistic OCD warriors and family members 
Whether in my therapy practice and connecting with guests from our OCD family community or even just through social media, I have had some treasured friends where we've connected through tweets, likes, and shares. Oh my. (laughs) And as much as social media can get a bad rap, it does allow this opportunity for greater access to our virtual neighborhood. Because whether here, across the pond, Australia, Asia, Africa, South America, Central America, all around the world. We have listeners from all around the world. We are just missing those couple scientists down in Antarctica. But I have a feeling they're working on important stuff in their own right. So you know what? Okay, I got you. I got you. But literally, our virtual neighborhood is just a click away. So I cherish the opportunities that I get to connect with y'all. Thank you for entrusting me with the content that I'm bringing. I'm never going to pretend to have it all right. But I am coming in good faith with research and experience and you, the OCD family community, sharing yourselves with us, this OCD family. And I just look forward to our continued conversations. So with all of this, I just want to tell you a little bit more about our esteemed guest, Dr. Jeremy Schumann. So Jeremy is a clinical psychologist here in St. Louis, Missouri, specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. In addition to providing psychotherapy to clients, he is the clinical director of a group practice there in St. Louis, and he teaches a seminar in the assessment and treatment of OCD. He supervises clinicians and participates in the dissemination of inference-based CBT. That is also known as ICBT, which we have been just all a chatter about ICBT here on the podcast lately. But he's also trained in ERP, that's exposure and response prevention. For those that are new to the podcast, these are our two evidence-based practices that we lean into. We can look into mindfulness, we can look into ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, but those are really kind of supplementary to these main practices of ICBT and ERP. And then Jeremy also provides professional consultation to other therapists on what we're talking about today, the importance of neurodiversity affirming therapies, particularly when we are looking at these behavioral approaches and the outcomes that can yield from that. So as I mentioned before, this is going to be a three-part series because there's just too much important content to do these conversations justice, even in the three episodes, y'all, let me be honest. But we're going to try. And we're starting today by laying a good foundation for better understanding the importance of neurodiversity affirming approaches and really the phenomenology of autism. And when we discuss phenomenology or phenotypes, I get these are a lot of big clinical words, but we're really just speaking to the meaning of how being autistic shows up within lived experience. Now, there is a lot of heterogeneity to lived experience, whether we're talking autism, OCD, being a part of an ethnic group, being a part of a gender or a sexual orientation, being fluid. And all of that is to say that each person's experience is going to be unique and diverse. So we aren't intending to paint in broad strokes here. OCD loves itself a good broad stroke, but we are really just looking for commonalities, the phenomenons, if you will, that can be helpful for us as loved ones, as treatment providers, researchers, folks with lived experience, tools to help us process some of the important considerations that can lead to embracing your authentic self or feeling like you have to suppress yourself. 
feeling like you're a mistake. So we are going to be discussing all of that and everything in between that we can fit into this hour. And then next week, we're going to apply today's foundation to practices like ABA and CBT. Because here's what we're going to be talking about, y'all. We're going to be looking at both of these practices and we're going to say, is it harmful or is it helpful? The conversation might surprise you. And then last but not least, we're going to be looking at how part one, part two, that foundation, we're going to apply this to OCD. We're going to look at how this can present differently within different phenomenological experiences, if you will, and continue these important conversations. So without further ado, let's dive in because I'm so eager, y'all, to introduce you to Jeremy. So let's do this. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today we are very fortunate to have Dr. Jeremy Schumann. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here today. Now, I first learned about some of the dynamic work that you're doing, Jeremy, through the ICBT group that we're both a part of. And we connected to talk really about the importance of neurodiversity affirming therapies, certainly when we're thinking of OCD. But today, what we really want to do is start by laying a really nice foundation for understanding neurodivergent presentations. And so today we're going to be focusing mostly on autism. I am really excited to be able to connect with you. You've put so much thought and support into this talk. And so thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Nicole. And I'll expand a little bit on what you're saying there about autism and neurodiversity and, and our purpose behind this talk is that I come from a behavioral background, and I know you do as well. We know our ERP stuff. Viewers of the show, I know, are all going to hopefully have some background in ERP and understand the, the behavioral components that go into that, where we break down the function of someone's behavior, and then we use these strategies of facing our discomfort in order to habituate or to learn something about the stimulus that was bothering us before. And there's a lot of overlap in the way that therapy for OCD or for autism would potentially be done there. Mm -hmm. We can use a behavioral strategy to change someone's response to a stimulus that they're not comfortable with. And in OCD, we get these really positive outcomes out of it where we see folks really change their relationship with these feared stimuli. Mm -hmm. And they feel empowered and they feel so much more confident and they feel like their true self comes out as they face this stuff. Mm -hmm. But then in the autism world, we also see an avoidance of things. We see sensitivity to things. We see these trouble with these stimuli. And through repeated exposure, we can also see that autistic people are more easily able to face these stimuli that they're not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But in contrast to OCD, we see these autistic people tend to have like less good long-term outcomes. Mm -hmm. Folks saying that they feel like they lost their sense of identity mm -hmm. rather than my authentic self came out once I got rid of this scary story I was telling myself. It became the autistic person is saying, I saw a problem in myself. It was inconvenient to everyone else. I guess it should just be my problem and no one else has to suffer with that anymore. Instead of my identity coming out, it's me suppressing these parts of me that I, I believe to be problematic. So 
we have a really interesting discussion as people who understand behavioral strategies mm -hmm. about being able to apply them for best possible long-term outcomes. And then when you consider the, the coexistence, the co-occurrence or comorbidity of how frequently autism and OCD co-occur, that becomes a topic where clinicians will do well to be sensitive to it, to understand how we maybe are leading people towards these outcomes of actually getting over the problem and feeling like yourself or learning to suppress parts of yourself and just deal with a large amount of stress because you feel like you're flawed and you're the one who needs to change all the time. Yeah. And you know what that reminds me of, Jeremy, is it reminds me. So we've talked as a community here, as a family, about the words ego dystonic and ego syntonic. And so ego dystonic, when we're talking about OCD, is this thing that is really distressing and troubling me if I'm able to do, whether it's exposure and response prevention or inference-based CBT, I can access my real true self and let go of some of this really distressing content because that content was ego dystonic. But similar to I'm recalling conversations, for example, with body dysmorphic disorder, where the distress is more egocentric because it's part of how we conceptualize ourselves to be, right? And so for we, when we're thinking about an autistic person that maybe has OCD or anything else, it doesn't even have to be OCD, and the feedback is, no, you should be suppressing this. This is a you problem, or so it feels, right? Then it's similar to this egocentric distress right? Because this must just be like, am I broken? Is this wrong that I'm thinking this? And so that's what it brings up for me. Would you say that that fits well in this example as well? Yeah, I think that with that egocentric, egodystonic question, I think that that really does get to a lot of the heart of this. Of when people see in their identity, this is who I am, and have no interest in change, that might be because this, this aspect of that agrees with them. However, it, like you're bringing up in the, in the body dysmorphia example here, just because something seems more egocentric doesn't mean it's not necessarily harmful. Right. It's not that just because something is egocentric, we would say that there's no intervention, there's no, no reason to talk further about it. This is just who you are and we have to accept it. But it, it brings up that you do have to take a nuanced approach to these questions and say, what kind of outcomes are we hoping to get by applying the intervention and for whose benefit? And through seeing through the experience of people with lived experience, we can maybe make better informed consent choices about what kinds of interventions we choose for ourselves. Right. And then as the clinician, as we're evaluating how appropriate an intervention is or not, we can help empower clients just understand their own identity versus that egocentric dystonic question. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so even if it's in sync with how we conceptualize ourselves to be, something that I will sometimes share with, I have two autistic sons, one of them has OCD. I also have a number of autistic clients. I love working with all populations, but something that I find helpful in comparing this is similar to hand washing in and of itself isn't bad. And that's a common compulsion that people, especially with contamination-based OCD, but also some magical thinking can also go along there, can sometimes be a non-logical link. But hand washing isn't bad, but it can be harmful if you're washing your hands 
20 times with lots of water going through a bottle of soap to the point that you're chapped and you keep washing. And so uh, there can be pieces of you that go, hey, this is part of who I am. But OCD loves to amplify and take it into excess where now something that might have been regulatory and might have been soothing is now dysregulating, is now more harmful. It can be, you know, certainly. And it is a case-by-case basis. And so understanding that is really important. So having this conversation, which is a really important one, is looking at this inhibitory learning approach. But also we see that in the medical model as well. And as we start talking about neurodiversity and finding neurodiversity-affirming therapies, can we talk about that a little bit and explore that? Yeah. So let's start with like defining these terms, neurodivergence and neurodiversity. So I don't have a definition written out in front of me, but sort of off the cuff, neurodivergence is anything, any way that neurology differs from what is typical. And there is no model typical neurology. So we might differentiate neurodivergent from neurotypical. That doesn't mean that there's one purely neurotypical person out there that sets the standard. Uh, And we could see sort of like a spectrum of differences. And neurodivergence often is used in the autism community, but it, it doesn't mean autism. It means different neurology. Mm -hmm. So ADHD is also commonly associated with the term neurodivergence, but OCD could also be seen as it, as could mood disorders, Mm -hmm. tick disorders, apraxia, speech issues. Someone has multiple sclerosis or is an amputee. These are ways that their neurology is different. All that falls under our umbrella of neurodivergence. And Mm -hmm. individuals can be divergent but groups can be diverse. So a, so neurodiversity means that within your group, there are multiple ways that uh, people are neurodivergent. And someone can be neurodivergent multiply within themselves and have ADHD and OCD and autism, mm-hmm. and they would be considered still a neurodivergent person or a multiply neurodivergent person. But we wouldn't call that person neurodiverse because a group can be neurodiverse, an individual be neurodivergent. Yeah, that's a really good point and something that just in our greeting one another and and our back and forth conversation, too, has been a helpful clarification for me. Certainly, my son, my oldest, has multiple neurodivergent processes at work for him. But yeah, I know I certainly was one going, oh, yeah, yes, neurodivergence. We embrace neurodivergence like he's a whole group of people. (laughs) And so... This goes back to a point that we talked a lot about even during my intersection series of how our language matters, right? Those small little shifts, recognizing it and making those shifts is one of the most, one of the easiest but meaningful ways that we can meet people where they're at and be respectful of that language and mindful of that language. So I appreciate you helping this family community here understand the difference there between neurodivergence and neurodiversity. And yeah, I I really appreciate that. Yeah. And so you're, you're getting at how this language shapes our frame of reference Mm -hmm. for how we view people, for how we conceptualize interventions that might benefit people. Mm -hmm. And you were bringing up that medical model before. So this, this language shifts the perspective of intervention a little bit where the medical model 
describes people as having these deficits, ways that they are broken, and saying, we need to fix this about you, make you more normal. Mm -hmm. And that's an oversimplification. I know doctors are out there and, and people who follow this model are looking to give people the best quality of life. We have a book that describes all the ways that, that people's lives are in pain, and then we develop treatments that help. But what this book, the DSM, the way that it describes autism and really describes mental health in general are how does this cause problems in your community? This is how are the people in your life going to observe that you're struggling with this condition? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll call that like a, a griefer perspective is like how someone else has grief about the patient. Mm -hmm. And with autism, we definitely see this where we see these two groups in the diagnosis. We're looking for social deficits and these restricted repetitive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so medically, we might see deficits in social communication and say that there are deficits in reciprocity with social emotional stuff, deficits in nonverbal communication behaviors, deficits in ability to develop relationships. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, with this restrictive repetitive behaviors, we might say that there are these stereotyped and repetitive speech as a complaint about a misuse of speech. Mm -hmm. Adherence to excessive routines, again, that's a problem, and now these routines bother other people. Mm -hmm. A highly restricted, fixated interest, how you're boring in one tone about everything you talk about, and this hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual sensory issues. Just try to withstand the typical barrage of sensory stimuli that people face on a regular basis and saying, well, that is what normal is. We should try to get you towards normal. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we consider that description of autism is how people say, autistic people are giving me problems. I need them to fit in better. We could look from a affirming perspective as opposed to that medical perspective and say, there's a huge amount of diversity in neurology. There's a huge amount of diversity in preference. And then also within subjective experience, what it feels like for me is not what it feels like for you. And so we're going to describe this in what it feels like from the inside out, as opposed to how people would complain about my behaviors from the outside in. So if the medical model describes these deficits, what does it feel like from the inside? We don't have a single model the way that the medical community all agrees on the DSM. So we kind of look at what some individual authors have put out there and try to come to some common ground, but it's not like I can say this is the way, this is just a way. So maybe looking at it as having sensory differences like smell, touch, taste, all our five senses might be experienced as more or less intense. Social differences, different ways of interacting in friendships, like having something in common to interact around or talk about without any connection just about shared humanity or just spending time together. There has to be something that we're doing together, mm -hmm. um, engaging in things like parallel play and not making a whole lot of eye contact, but we're doing the same thing in the room together and feeling connected in that way. Mm -hmm. Or being not just introverted, but having a preference for like large periods of time in solitude or being really hyper-connected and feeling lonely all the time and needing to be surrounded by people. We see these hypo and hyper traits in each of these areas. Another 
autistic phenomenology term. So we've called it special interest in the community of people who've talked about autism from the outside for a long time. Some folks in the neurodiversity affirming movement call them just spins for special interest. Mm -hmm. But it's that idea of basing your identity around an interest, Mm -hmm. being so attached to some content, some idea that it's all you want to talk about, but it's also how you see yourself. Maybe you dress that way or or Mm -hmm. lead with that in your identity. We see differences in emotional intensity where maybe being hypo-emotional about some things or hyper-emotional about other things that can lead to meltdowns. We also see autistic people tend to have like a huge energy drain out of emotions and maybe get to a place where they're really burned out by having to tend to other people's emotions or mask their own emotional expression in groups. Mm-hmm. We also see in that emotion area some hypersensitivity at times to things like honesty or all or nothing thinking or infatuation or hyper oriented towards justice and can't let things go in ways that are surprising to other people. Take that in contrast to someone who has described autism as a deficit of theory of mind, not understanding how other people think and feel. Maybe the autistic person understands very well, but their response is just not predicted by the neurotypical person. That right. what the understanding has to go two ways in that place. So is that a deficit or is that just a difference? If it's something like justice sensitivity, why is Greta Thunberg so obsessed with the climate and, mm-hmm. uh, and feeling so intensely about it? People say, I can't understand why she would think that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, someone else who who shares that passion would say, well, I don't understand how you can be so lax if, if you feel like the world is burning. Right. Um, well, yeah. and if you think about the world right now and people, how polarized it feels, if you also flip the script on that, you can see how people have very big feelings in opposite directions, right? And so in some mm-hmm. ways, it's normalized to go, yes, I'm for this. And if you're not, like, I don't even know how mm-hmm. to think like you, right? And we, whether you're neurodivergent or not, that can happen. But certainly when we zoom into just looking at different aspects of an autistic person's way of processing the world, and if we wanted to just zoom in on that hyper interest, oh, yeah, all you can talk about is this thing. That's really interesting. And it's like, is it that atypical? Right. Right. You're getting ahead of me on that. But I I totally agree that if you saw that the world was burning, wouldn't you take the same sorts of steps as Greta Thunberg? And we describe autistic behavior sometimes as being so intense or so stereotyped, but those same patterns might be done by a neurotypical person. So like as an example, I'm a mandated reporter because I'm a psychologist. Mm -hmm. If I get a new client who comes into my office and I suspect that they're being abused of their child, I have to report those things to social services. And I have to take trainings pretty regularly to keep me up to date on what would be reportable or not reportable. Mm -hmm. So we get an example on one of these trainings about a young client comes into your office and they won't make eye contact with you. They won't talk with you. They're sitting in the corner, rocking back and forth. They won't answer any questions about their caregiver. What would I do? I would call social services and say, this is not a normal reaction. This kid is terrified. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I suspect some sort of abuse because of how intensely they're afraid of this situation. Mm -hmm. But if that caregiver had said, oh, my kid is just autistic, well, a lot of people would think, 
oh, well, no eye contact, rocking back and forth, feeling really uncomfortable. That's normal for autism. But why was that normal for autism? Well, the kid who's being abused, there's a lot of intense aversive experience happening here. They're going to have to talk about their abuse. They're maybe getting flashbacks. They're having all these difficult internal experiences. And they're soothing by rocking. And they're avoiding this contact with me and trying to stay safe. Mm -hmm. What's the autistic kid who's rocking and avoiding eye contact doing? They're doing the exact same behaviors. They're, yeah. they're in a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. The eye contact is an aversive stimulus, so they are turning their eyes away. The lights overhead are aversive stimulus. They're getting overwhelmed. They're rocking to self-soothe. They're not connecting with me because I'm not a trusted person and there's a social difference and it's overwhelming to them. So are their behaviors autistic behaviors or are their behaviors regulating behaviors that just were unexpected in this context. But if I put myself in their shoes, what subjectively it would feel like, I would say, oh, I could understand why they engage in those regulating behaviors. Right. The same as we're saying, if you thought the world was on fire, you might engage in these really intense reactions to it as well. Or if you were passionate about your work or you were passionate about something else, and you were over the top and wanted to talk about it. These are things that we can understand in our own context. And so when we open up to understanding the phenomenology, the subjective experience of what it's like to be inside an autistic body, an autistic mind, then it maybe starts to make sense why we see some of these quote unquote autistic behaviors that they're really just regulating behavior. It's the same as we would use in the same amount of demand from situations. That is such a great point because what we're doing, and honestly, is something we talk a lot about here in the OCD family community is looking at the function of the behavior, right? And so if we look at in that case scenario, and I think that's a really powerful juxtaposition, if you have a traumatized kid who is coping, who is trying to manage through all this really difficult experience, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? And for the autistic person, it, you're right. The function is the same in terms of this is really stressful. I'm trying to cope. I'm trying to regulate. But it's seen as, oh, no, that's just who you are, right? Like, it's not right. always seen. It is probably not fair for me to go such broad strokes for folks out there like, hey, I don't do that. But a lot of times people just see that as, oh, you're autistic. OK, that makes sense. Instead of understanding the function of the behavior and in terms of stimming, whether it's rocking or it can show up in a variety of ways, the function is regulatory. Often it's hard for the people in the environment to a either understand or b relate. And so c why are you doing that? But you're right. You're right. Like this person has come into your office and they need to soothe because this is new and you don't have that relationship yet. You have to build that trust in both scenarios. You have to be able to build that right. trust. And if you think about it, you're not the first person that's ever encountered this child acting in this way where the child or adult, because certainly this is for adults, plenty of adults will be like, hey, I still get it. In fact, there's almost more of a pass if you're a kid, because once you're 18, you're supposed to just grow out of that shit, right? Pardon the cursey word. Sometimes mm -hmm. I go there. But it's true in terms of like, they have gotten so much feedback over time that this isn't how they should be handling that situation. It's not like you're the first person that may or may not miss the function of why and why that's important. Right. Yeah. 
And you know what, Jeremy, I on so over at ocdfamilypodcast.com, every single episode I put up a corresponding blog post where I list resources, citations, anything that can be helpful, handouts, whatever's applicable. And one of the things I was just thinking about as we're having this conversation is when we're thinking about the spectrum, I think most people's tendency is to think of a linear bell-shaped curve where what's within normal. So we're going to have outliers on each side, but are you within the range of the bell, right? And so I think that's a pretty neurotypical way of probably thinking about it. But in terms of the spectrum, and I know in conversations I've had with folks, whether it's within my family, whether it's clients, even for my own understanding within clinician groups, really, I like to think of the circle graph. And one of the things we talked about beforehand was the helpfulness of infographics, especially in understanding certain concepts. So certainly I'm going to put up with this blog post some infographics. But when we're thinking of the spectrum, there's so many different slices of the pie and some overlap and some are different. And when we're thinking about what is our neurology, even not just autism, but our neurology, we're all going to have varying levels. If we think of the circle instead of a bell-shaped curve, what's normal within the circle? Well, I mean, it's so highly individualized. What's normal? I think society defines normal as functioning or the ability to function in these environments, like you said, without other people feeling like, ah, I don't like the way you're handling this, how you're functioning. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what is even neuronormativity at that point? Because we all have different makeups. Right. I, there, it's hard to answer that question, but it's sort of like the question of, can you define white culture? We often try to define culture in contrast to a majority culture, but there's good work to be done in defining the majority culture as well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a resource that says this is what typical neurology looks like. We, we define it sort of in contrast to that, I, I still believe. Right. And so at a certain point, we're just kind of bouncing off reflections of this is what I see and experience here. This is what I see and experience here. And it's really subjective. I mean, I got a few thoughts on this. Okay, so the, the first one is one description of autism that I really like is the intense world series. That's something you've heard of before. No, but I would love to learn more about it. So we can't really point a finger and say, for certain, this is what autism is neurologically. But one hypothesis is that we've got these bundles of neurons that are talking to each other in our brains. Mm -hmm. And there might be an average number and an average amount of connectivity in those neurons. And that in autism, they are hyper and hypo connected. In some places, more neurons and more connected. In some places, less neurons and less connected. And it's not like predictable. If you're hyper or hypo in any of these traits that I was just going through, that could point you towards an autism diagnosis. And so we'll see just such great heterogeneity amongst what people who are autistic look like, because someone might be hyper on four or five traits and another person hypo on those same traits. And we still call them both autistic. Mm -hmm. But what, what you're sort of describing with that circle image idea is maybe we could say that there are these traits, these subjective individual level traits, and that if they are 
way far out in the hyper expressed in one direction that we would call that atypical, we would call that divergent. If they're hypo expressed in the other direction, we would say that they are also divergent. And if they're in the middle, then they're typical. But then spread this out so that across each trait, it's a different slice of a pie across the circle. And now what does neurotypical look like if across all of these domains, having that middle range expression of a trait, but no one is exactly average. So where do we draw a line from saying an individual is divergent or typical becomes tricky and also is maybe a less important question to me of like, where do we assign the label? versus the question of where does someone have a right to ask for support? Yes. And I think that there's just no, there should be no barrier to entry to that. Yeah. If you have a support need, you should be able to express how you are having difficulty with the way society is set up and what support you need. And then we'll see what we can do to try to accommodate that or to give you a different kind of support so that maybe that barrier doesn't exist for you anymore. Yeah. I mean, one of the talks I have regularly with my older son is about self-advocacy. So there are certain things that are going to help him. And there are certain things that are neutral. And there are going to be certain things that really trigger him. And allowing people, instead of people saying, well, you should fit in this box because you're this age and you're this development and you're this, being able to say, this is hard for me because of this. And then if that doesn't work, mama bear will come in and be like, hi. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that we work on because often for kiddos and adults, again, the messaging can be, well, you shouldn't do that. We don't like that. This annoys us. It bugs us. We prefer you to do this a different Mm -hmm. way. Okay. You can prefer for it to be done a different way. I'd prefer you do it a different way. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're both on board with not enjoying each other's preferences. But learning how to advocate for yourself within that. And I think that's really important. Also, the hypo and hyper pieces that you were talking about, the different elements there, like those fluctuate even within a person on a given day. So, for example, my middle son and my youngest, my daughter, who is also neurodivergent, they love gymnastics. And on Tuesdays, they have gymnastics and everybody knows it because my son will be like, I'm doing gymnastics today. And it's really sweet. He Mm -hmm. looks forward to it. And so he had OT last Tuesday after occupational therapy for folks that are newer to that term. There's so many acronyms. So like to explain mm-hmm. it when I can. But he had OT and I thought this will either go great because he's super regulated. He gets a lot out of vestibular and proprioceptive input. And he just did hardcore gymnastics or it'll be hard. He'll be fatigued and he'll be tired mm-hmm. and he will need a break. And so he went to OT and he had a great session. They came back. He had a new OT working with him and they did a lot of things with getting goop on his hands glue, paint, things that he does not like. He does not like to be messy. And so usually he has to break down that tactile defensiveness to be able to engage in a task that we say should be fun, right? This is finger painting. No, it's fun. You you need to get in that paint, right? But to him, he's like, nope, not going to do it, right? And he went in without any extra prompting. Why? Because he was so regulated going into it. I guarantee had he gone in at that time of day, not on a gymnastics day or any other time before some of that heavy play and that work, he would have had a lot of distress. 
Now, what is the goal here? Is the goal to get him to be able to embrace finger painting or be able to whatever? No, the goal is not for him to ever like that. I love actually that he doesn't like to get dirty. It makes my job as a mom easier, right? Less to clean up when he's so mindful of those things. But at the same time, for him to be able to survive in the world, I don't want him to be so scared of it that it limits the world that he can engage in because not everybody is going to have that perspective. And so it becomes not a you should. So I'm going to make you I'm going to force you into being someone that likes to get goopy and messy. Instead, it becomes this thing where he gets to go, hey, if I want to go travel to New York when I'm older, but I'm worried about touching all the different things and, and Mm -hmm. I could get dirty or whatnot. I feel like if I want to do that, and that's my value. We talk about value-driven mm-hmm. goals. Then I can do that. And I know if I get yucky, then I can clean myself. He probably won't call it yucky when he's that old, you know. And so the goal is important to keep in mind. Not that I'm forcing well, you to, you're a kid, you should like finger painting. But how can I survive in these situations where I'm not going to plan to engage purposely on it, but I'm okay doing it and I can tolerate it? if I need to, to get to where I want to go. Yeah. Yes. I I want to revisit that because I have a lot to say on maybe some levels of outcomes that we can look for there because yeah, we don't, you don't want the only goal to be my son will love finger painting, but at the same time, how many people do this passive avoidance thing of I hate to have goop on my hands and then I finger paint a thousand times and it turns out, well, I don't like to do X, but I do like finger painting still. And so we'll get to that. That we Sometimes people will either habituate or learn something, but we have to just listen to them and not come in with a fixed mindset of you can't or you can but uh, help people find their own agency, help people find their own identity. I want to get there after we talk about what happens when we do exposure therapy. But even before I go there, I want to finish the phenomenology piece. Yes, please. Yeah, go for it. Autism from the inside out, we might talk about sensory differences, social differences, special interest, emotional intensity. The rest of these executive functioning differences, like differences on how easily I can control my attention, mm-hmm. uh, on ability to juggle multiple tasks and working memory and these sort of like cognitive differences, maybe even what the experience of thought itself feels like in your head and your mind. Mm-hmm. Another category would be communication differences, like needing super accurate, specific communication versus being able to talk very figuratively or scripted phrases or gestalt use of communication where like one phrase carries a specific meaning and gets used a lot. And rather than its specific words, we take these phrases as individual units. Yeah. And you know what? On gestalt language processing, too, I think I actually wrote a note when you were talking about language processing. I'm like, like gestalt language processing. I think that's also a really good example of my daughter does and she's really started to break it down but does a lot of gestalt language processing and so people will think she comes in wow what a beautiful day the sun is shining the birds are chirping that means it's sunny today it's what it used to mean at least and people go okay she's very Uh verbal she understands a lot look how descriptive she is in nature when really she has more of that echolalic scripting right 
And they'll say, oh, she's in preschool. They'll do calendar time and they're like, well, what's the weather today? It's sunny. And she looks blank. And they're like, we know she knows what we're talking about. You should hear the way she talks about a sunny day. And I'm like, oh, I've heard the way she talks about a sunny day. That's what it is. But if you're just going, is it sunshine or cloudy? That's not the way she understood that. And so mm-hmm. being able to be able to break that down in those different language processing. So it's not just the language you use, but how we're using it is also an important piece. When we're thinking about neurodiversity and neurodiversity affirming therapies, it's really important. And we're not going to be able to break down all these in an hour. These are each of these little bullet points I'm hitting on is an hour long talk of, of itself. Right. But just so that listeners can start to wrap their heads around this idea of hyper and hypo expressed traits and how it's, it's unpredictable. You have to look behind what the behavioral expression is to what function is it serving for the individual who's doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after communication, we could include stimming where we're putting in positive sensory experiences so that it just has a regulating effect. If I'm starting to feel distressed and I put in positive sensory experiences, it brings my arousal level down and makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. So that could be rocking when we're distressed or flapping hands or jumping when we're excited. It's all things that are just regulating the mood there. Yeah. And as we were saying before about the trying to bring just so much understanding, acceptance, understand the functional consequence of this. When you think about something like stimming, let's say you're in a classroom, someone's stimming is distracting. It's visually and it makes noise and it's distracting to the other student. Well, this isn't a situation where you just say, we have to be understanding everyone else in the classroom is going to be distracted by your stim. It's also the case that we're not going to say, well, person who needs that stim, you aren't allowed to stim. You're not going to be able to get the value out of your education because you're not going to be able to stay regulated in the classroom and be able to understand things. So we have to work out these sort of bespoke solutions to things where maybe this is a classroom that's very tolerant of that. It doesn't get a lot of distraction. Maybe there's a way we can keep him mostly mainstream. Maybe there is another stim that fulfills that same function that is not distracting to others. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we need to have time outside of the classroom or have a para or something like that. But all these options have to be weighed with knowledge of what kind of consequences they're going to have for the individual who we're trying to help through this way. So we're, we, could, we do need to help the class just as much as we need to help the individual. Right. And this is where different plans like individualized education plans can be helpful in terms of going, okay, so if this person is flapping a lot and needs some movement, maybe if we build in a sensory wiggle break for them to go ahead and get some of that input that's going to be regulatory, then we can predict in a way that this is going to be a calmer class session, right? Also, if let's just think about it, like if you were the student in the class and say you're just sitting there feeling anxious and you're just dealing with it internally, as far as you know, and everyone turns and looks at you and the teacher says, what are you doing? And you're like, what? Like, (laughs) like you're going to feel even more Mm -hmm. distressed. Now we're going to see some of that amp up, right? Because Mm -hmm. all these people are looking at me. And Johnny over here is like continuing to look at me as people move on. It's hard. And so if you think about it, for the person, whether they're autistic or not, sitting there with all those eyes, all that focus, all that attention on you when you're already dysregulated, already trying to either come down or go up in terms of that hypo or hyper state, 
to feel regulated, to feel just right, that's really hard. And then as we're going to talk about next week, we're going to talk about how OCD comes in because OCD can go just right. Hey, how do you like a moving target that's about a millimeter wide? Regulated is not just right. They're different things. Right, right. right. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting. And, you know, what you were saying as we were getting into the phenomenology here, I was thinking some of these points where we're accounting for these differences, I feel like I could see in my own marriage just as regular like couple issues. Right. You can go. This is what it feels like for me. Okay, well, this is what it feels like for me. I feel like you're not hearing me. Right. It's like how many of us have had that conversation with our spouse? Or my husband is always, I've grown since then, but I used to always be like, I want us to spend more quality time. He's like, we're in the same room. I'm working on this and fixing that. You're reading a book. And I'm like, but I want quality time. Is this not quality time? And it was like, okay, we can have different definitions of what that's like. But also Mm -hmm. it requires some communication and some compromise. Sometimes that's Mm going to be our quality time. Sometimes we might get something a little more towards me. That just happens in regular relationships before Mm -hmm. we even put on a filter of neurotype, right? And so I think it's an important thing to remember, too, because so often we go, oh, autism, that's what that is. It's like, hey, we all have some of those different pieces. We just see it different for ourselves. Like, oh, that's not a problem for me. I only do it this much. But for them, oh, that's that's a problem. And so being mindful of actually, we all have different aspects of this. We all have different sensory systems. We all have different ways we're going to process stuff. And so being understanding that not everybody is going to think and talk and feel like you. Yeah, we all do it to some extent to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, to be able to be flexible and get along in our relationships. But how open minded do we have to be? How much of a beginner's mind do we have to take to these conversations when someone has very drastically different preferences from us. If it doesn't make sense, ask enough questions that it starts to make sense for you. And if you have an experience that you can understand how someone else experiences it. So yes, absolutely. So the other the other two areas where we see these differences are proprioception differences, like you were mentioning how your son does well after gymnastics because he needs to stim through this heavy work or this vestibular stuff, going head over heels, spinning around in circles. So there might be an intolerance for that, or there might be a desire for that. Same with our sensory stuff about one person hates bright lights, another person wants the light show in their face, right. one person hates loud noise, another person needs the rock concert. And there's differences within an individual where I hate the conference, but I love the rock concert. Uh, yeah. Right. Same things with proprioception here. It's just another sensory system. And then the other sensory system here is interoception, which is like what my internal states are. So that's things like understanding feelings of hunger and thirst, not having such an attuned sense of hunger or feeling hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. But it also feels like it could also be like toileting urges. It could also be emotion identification. We have this fancy word of alexithymia, alexithymia, without words for feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's an inability to describe what my feeling is. It might just feel like I feel nothing or I feel an intense feeling but there's not much in between that I could talk about. Mm-hmm. And the the language for what specifically that is, is hard for me to find because all emotion feels roughly similar to me. It just feels bad as opposed to someone saying, oh, I, I feel sadness is a lump in my throat and I feel anxiety is butterflies in my stomach. It might just all feel like my body doesn't feel right. I don't have any other sense beyond that. Yeah. For anybody with like a toddler age or preschool age, 
kiddo that maybe is a late talker or has a speech delay, like we see this all the time because as their brains continue to grow and they grow so much in those first five years, their processing outspeeds their ability to express, right? And so they could feel very elated and happy about something and very exuberant. They could feel very upset and meltdown about something that you're like, what? You wanted the red cup. I gave you the red cup. You're very upset with the red cup. I don't get it. But there's so much more going on for them. It could be, I wished that I had water in my red cup, not milk or whatever, but they don't know necessarily how to say it. And so we see that as an organic part of development. But let me interject here is that a difference there is that the child is then going to learn. They're going to see these things over and over again. They're going to develop language for it, and then they're going to be able to express themselves. But if this is a neurological issue, I might never be able to look inside and easily explain what it is. I might always be looking for these context cues in a way that other people don't have to do, and that can make things more difficult. That's a really good point. Yeah. You've given us a really good foundation, really. But I would love to talk more about inhibitory learning. And so when we start thinking about treatment then, and when we start thinking about evaluation processes and how to really address learning, if inhibitory learning might be, I don't know, training people out of their natural instincts or natural feelings, uh, suppressing them as a word we used. would love to talk more about what would be a better, more affirming way to address this learning process. So let me zoom out and just give this overview about behaviorism and how we change behaviors that are really unworkable. Mm-hmm. If someone has OCD, and they are washing their hands a million times until they're bleeding and they can't leave the house. And we expose them to the thing they were afraid was contaminated and don't allow them to wash their hands. And they sit in that unsafe space for enough time. One of two things or both is going to happen. Either they are going to literally desensitize to the anxiety about the contamination or the feeling of disgust about the contamination Mm -hmm. so that they don't feel it anymore. Like if you get into a cold swimming pool and you stay in there for a while, it stops being uncomfortable, just starts feeling cold and you can handle it, but have fun. Mm -hmm. They're either going to desensitize or they're not really going to desensitize so much, but they are going to learn that they can handle this. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad happened, and it was a little bit distressing, but it's more important that I go and face this than I prevent that distress. In fact, preventing that distress by washing my hands so much, that was causing me way more problems than it was worth. And as I experienced just accepting my distress, I would learn to choose that over the feeling of washing my hands over and over because I built a mental model for it by going through this process over and over again. I know what that's going to be like. And as I compare those two, I can see myself going with that one where I just feel distressed, but nothing, you know, that my OCD feared was going to happen, happened besides that, that feeling of distress. Mm -hmm. So in, in the model where we literally desensitize, we've often called that like the habituation model. And then in the model where 
I learned that I don't need to do this because the bad thing doesn't happen. I'm confident enough about that. And I can handle the disgust or the fear that goes along as I was predicting the bad thing wasn't really going to happen. I'm able to tolerate that distress. We might call that inhibitory learning by learning what it's going to feel like when I get there. Now I don't have to do my compulsion and inhibit the compulsion because it's not going to be necessary mm-hmm. given my experience with mm-hmm. this before. So that was a really nice tool for us to understand, you know, sometimes our clients, their stress level doesn't go down, but we want to encourage them to be flexible with their behaviors anyway. So how can we communicate with them about what ERP might give them if they're still saying, well, I've been sitting with this for 20, 30 minutes, my distress level is up. Well, is your confidence that you could handle this also Mm -hmm. up? Is your confidence that your feared outcome wasn't going to happen up? Do you feel like at the drop of a hat, you'd be willing to feel this distress again in order to live your values now that you have experience with it? Okay, good. But it didn't matter that your distress went down. This inhibitory learning model gave us other sorts of nice outcomes for you to take away from this. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to what does habituation really mean? We're using it in place of desensitization a lot. They don't literally mean the same thing. Right. Habituation means you Stop doing your behavioral response in response to a stimulus. Mm -hmm. So the classic example is with sea slugs or with some kind of slug, some kind of aquatic slug, Uh where when they are safe, they extend these little eye stalks out of the top of their head so they can look around for food. But animals want to eat them if they see those eye stalks. So if there's any danger around, they retract them back into their body. So you zap a sea slug and it pulls its eyes back into its body, mm-hmm. and then you wait. How long does it take before it's going to stick its antenna back out? Zap it again. Comes out a little bit quicker. Zap it again. Comes out a little bit quicker. Keep zapping it. Eventually, it doesn't pull its stalks in at all. Mm-hmm. And now we can say it's habituated to the zap because it's no longer pulling its eye stalks in, mm-hmm. right? So that's literally what habituation is, is that you are still not responded to this stimulus that formerly was averted, okay? So let's take another example of this sort of habituation. For all the psych people there, we remember Seligman's dogs. Mm-hmm. He did this study where he put these dogs, he's done it, I guess, a couple different ways. He put them in this like mesh hammock and he ran an electric charge paired with a tone through the hammock. So zapping these dogs over and over again. And the dogs would struggle and try to escape, but they couldn't escape. They had to just get zapped and zapped and zapped and zapped, and there was no escape. And then he kept the zaps going, but he changed the conditions so that the dogs could escape now. But the dogs had all learned there's no escape. I'm just going to get shocked over and over again and learned I better just tolerate the shock. Mm-hmm. And they stop trying to escape even, even when there is an escape. So it's like we could say they stopped their escape behavior because they habituated to the shocks. But what happens to these dogs? They get depressed. It's right. not good for their morale. It's not good for their psyche. This learned right. helplessness idea is not like what we want in human beings. It's not the kind of outcome that we want to get out of our ERP trial. So if if we are asking someone to sit with an uncomfortable stimulus, we either want to see they desensitized and they're like, cool, I got this. This doesn't bother me anymore. Thank you so much for giving that to me. Like I was saying, with your son's finger painting, there's going to be some amount of people with autism, OCD, whatever, who engage with the stimulus enough that they say, oh, I, I don't have any scary story about this. 
and my nervous system can handle this now and I like it and people deserve to be able to have access to that. Mm -hmm. But then there's going to be some people sort of a level less optimal than that who say, yeah, my distress is up, but I'm more resilient to distress than I used to be. I'm able to sit with this. I know what it feels like to have this episode of distress rise and fall. I know how bad it can get, and I know that I can sit with it. So in service of my values to do the things I want to do in life, I'm going to allow myself to feel this distress. But then we'll have maybe a level less optimal even still where it's, I hate this. I wish I never had to feel this. But in order for me to get along in my life the way I need to, I need to be flexible to -hmm. some amount of this stuff or I'm not going to have the outcomes that I want, the career that I want, the living space that I want, the relationships that I want. So I don't really think I'm that capable of it, but I'm willing to live in a little bit of dysregulation or quite a bit of dysregulation in service of these goals that I want. Mm-hmm. Well, then we can we can take habituation even to a less optimal level, which sounds like I'm wrong. My needs don't matter. Everyone else's needs matter. I'm broken. The reason that I have these preferences is because I'm flawed and I don't deserve anything. I should feel in distress all the time because I am an inconvenience to everyone else otherwise. Well, that's not healthy. That's not what we want to have people coming to. That does not sound like the kind of inhibitory learning that we're talking about in the studies by Michelle Krask and listening to her case studies about patients. But that is what autistic adults often say was the result of the behaviorism that was applied to them when they were kids, that it was about other people's problems with their behavior. And they were told over and over and over again, you're not acceptable. The only way you're going to be acceptable is if you fit in and become as typical as possible. If you do this treatment, we're going to wipe the difference out of your brain and you will be typical, but they don't feel typical. So they shut up about it and they become very detached from their authentic preferences. They don't know what it takes to make themselves happy. We can see people going down directions of being like way demand avoidant and aggressive. And it's like a trauma response to fight back against the people who are pushing you and you don't even know why. Or we can see people become very compliant and meek, but neither of those are regulated. Neither of those are ideal outcomes we want. What we want to see are those, if we can't get true desensitization, what we want to see is flexibility, ability to self-advocate and have conversations, negotiations with the people in your life that you can accept some amount of distress in service of your goals. And the people around you can accept some amount of distress because they value you in their lives, Mm -hmm. but it's always negotiated. It's always based off of what's going to work out best so that everyone's needs get met. And if we can't meet each other's needs, then we have to set boundaries there and not just assume that one person is going to be compromising all the time. Yeah, I think it's so powerful. And I'm so glad that you were able to highlight those different levels of outcomes and goals, and also just how a lot of people are feeling when you said You know, I talked with Katie a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about how just the gaslighting they have experienced in terms of, no, it's not too loud in here. It's not too hot. That's not too bright. 
just on the basic stuff, which can have a huge impact. But this is like just skimming the surface of this kind of iceberg of the messaging that, yeah, you are broken and you are the problem. That's how it feels for a lot of people. So first of all, I think that's a really validating response for people who have been in that very lonely place of feeling isolated and feeling like what they feel isn't worthy or valid because it is. You are worthy. You are valid just being you. You're the only you we've got and we are a better world for having you in it. And so that is really profound. I'm glad that you were able to review that because there is hope. But first, it takes understanding of you're not broken. It's not because of your neurotype. And on the flip side, sometimes people go, no, you are the best. And we don't expect anything more from you because you're autistic and you did this thing. Yay. And that also can feel patronizing and like, what? Because the expectations yeah. are either way too high or way too low, and it can still leave someone really feeling left out and feeling like how I don't even know where my place in all of this is. Add on not being able to express the feelings you're feeling, having a loss for words or, or ways to meaningfully communicate that. Oh, like so hard. That is so hard to be told You've got to do it different to fit in, to be good enough, to be a part, and then not know how to express that. That tension is so, so hard. Thank you for that. Oh, family, I really love this foundation that we were able to create here because A, having a better understanding of neurodiversity is really important, but also B, what does doing neurodiversity affirming therapy mean? I mean, this is really important ground to cover because it supports the further conversation about clinical and ethical considerations when it comes to treatment options for our autistic family community. So this chat really primes us for the talk that we are going to be having next week about ABA and CBT, and I guarantee it will be a lively discussion. But before we jump to next week, we've hit the point in the show called the Intrusive Thought Segment which is an application segment of my show for any new family joining us today. And for ICBTers in our fam, we would also maybe refer to this as the relevant here and now portion of the show. <laughs> maybe? I don't know. I might need to workshop that one a little bit. But suffice to say, this is a time where we're going to practice some good cognitive feedback loops and know, hey, here's something we learned. Here's how we can apply it. Let's do this, yeah? So let's talk, y'all. What have we learned today, family? I can talk about so many lessons I've learned over time, but I'll share an ongoing one for me. And, you know, it's ironic and yet not because this is the theme. This is like a little bit of the broken record we keep hearing here over the different episodes of the podcast. And it's the importance of looking at the function of a behavior and how that function can change and morph over time. And so recognizing how and when function changes or why, it's really, really important. So the real lesson for me in this has been, and, and really a takeaway that I get from our conversation with Jeremy just now is not to assume that I know why something is happening, even as mom. I know my kid. I know why they're doing this. I'm pretty sure. Well, pretty sure is not the same as being in their head and they're not in my head. 
And so while sometimes, maybe even most times, I can be pretty spot on, that doesn't mean I should just assume that I know why this thing is happening. I need to be asking, or even more importantly, listening. Understanding the why is so, so important. Because like Jeremy illustrated, that child rocking in the corner during a session, maybe because of trauma, or maybe an aversive sensory and so ultimately a very emotional and difficult experience, or both, all of that information is important. And you know, we don't, at least I hope we don't, y'all, we don't, right? We don't minimize the distress of an abused child and say, ah, yeah, that reads, makes sense that, you know, given this kid, given the history, that's, that's, you know, that's what we expect. And not offer support, help, opportunities to safely soothe or process this really hard thing or these traumatizing experiences that have happened for them. But do we offer that for the autistic kiddos or the autistic adults? Or is that what we expect? It's just a spectrum, you know? Some people are here and some people are there. Okay. Yeah, they're going to do that. They're autistic. If we listen, if we think about it, if we take a stroll in someone else's shoes, we may just find that the function is strikingly similar. But our response in those two different scenarios, they're not the same. They're not similar at all. An overwhelming majority of responses can often fall into this messaging that implicitly seems to communicate, well, it might not be the intent. This is a you problem. You're on your own. Till you can get over it and rejoin the way we expect you to rejoin. Until you can stop disrupting the classroom or realize that it's not that loud. Take your hands down. Do you realize how loud you talk? You're practically screaming all the time. Here you're complaining about a noise. It's not even loud. You're just manipulating the situation. Ugh, it breaks my heart. But I can't say that I have never been guilty of not seeing the function or even coming down on a response in a way that in hindsight was probably very shaming, not instructive, not helpful. And you know what? The point isn't to shame ourselves here. We are going to mess up in life. All of us, certainly me. My husband's like, say it again, Nicole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our point is to grow. Sometimes that means saying, sorry, I have, I've messed this up. I have stepped in it and more importantly, I've missed you in the process. Sometimes that may mean saying to ourselves, I'm going to do better. I've got to do better. And I'm going to really pay attention to this. Sometimes it means I'm going to work on not assuming so much. Have you ever talked to someone where they're like, well, I just assumed? <laughs> because even if you assumed correctly, say this one time or the last time for your loved one, for your partner, for your spouse, or it's logical for you to see why your assumption would be true. Look at all the supporting evidence I can point to. Sounds a lot like that logic we can use to reason ourselves into a certain state of thinking. But it doesn't mean that the person before me is experiencing all these factors in the same way that I am, that they're thinking about it how I would. And this might mean I'm going to have to tolerate some discomfort here to compromise with you, my family or friends, my girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, partner, grandparent, child. But also that other person in this relationship they're going to need to do the same. Relationships, true relationships are two-way streets, y'all. So if you are the only one conceding that, yep, I'm all wrong, I'm all broken, you're right all the time, no, that doesn't work. It's not healthy. And we, 
you, I, we, to serve more. Because both of us are our own people. And the point isn't to give up and accept the shocks in life without any hope to escape. We aren't the dogs in the hammock here. Which, side note, don't you feel for those dogs in the hammock? You're like, that sucks. We've got the slugs being shocked. We've got the dogs being shocked. Aren't you glad for ethical boards that are like, yeah, let's not shock so much, right? Ugh. And so, while this may, on one hand, sound like common sense, it's also a reminder. What's the function of what's going on here? I may be like 99.9% positive, y'all, that I know. And maybe I do know. But maybe I don't. Maybe the person suffering or performing the behavior doesn't even know what this is or how to put it into words. And that's okay. It's hard. It sucks. But it happens. So what can we do in that situation? Well, there are a variety of different outcomes we could see. And maybe just like a trusty old algebra equation, something we might have to figure out is the missing variable by the clues and the variables that we do know that exist. I don't know why or what I'm feeling, but I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to go here. I want to be able to have that. Okay, so what moves us closer to our goal? Our goal. Because we get to have agency in this. And I know y'all, you're like, she didn't just say algebra, did she? Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, fam. I'm not going to make you math too much. <laughs> but I think this really does speak to the need for understanding or having grace for the function. Doesn't mean there's no boundaries, no natural consequences, no like, that might be what you think you need, but that's not going to be healthy or safe. Okay, sure. Doesn't mean we're always going to get what we want or what we feel we need. But it does help when we look at what supports we need, if any to be able to get to where we're going, to be able to reach out and toward that sense of authentic self, of who we are, not the idea of who we're expected to be, because that, it's really, really important. And it's core to really understanding and supporting really all treatment, all treatment, not just neurodivergent affirming therapy, but treatment for all of us, because we, different neurotypes or not, we're not alone. So look around for yourself, for others, for your loved ones, and see how and when this applies. And then we'll hope to see you back here next week as we dive into the topics, a bit controversial, I'll say, of ABA and CBT. Is it helpful or harmful? So join us in that conversation, if you will, because there's always room and our family table is better with you. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Jeremy and me talking about neurodiversity. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.